turn in our Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 8. Sunday morning, studying the book of Acts together, and uh, come to Acts chapter 8. Once again, a section that we looked at last week, but we didn't quite uh, glean it for everything that I think the Holy Spirit wants us to glean from the passage. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and you wave to them, they'll put a Bible in your hand, and it'll be marked to our text this morning for your convenience. And if you don't own a Bible, make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Well, while you're holding your place in Acts chapter 8, I'd like you to go to the left and uh, go to Psalm 19 as well. I want to kind of uh, work from two passages this morning in uh, what I think the Lord wants to say. And we'll begin with Psalm 19. David writes by the Holy Spirit, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. And in them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber each morning and rejoices like a strong man to run its race across the skies each day. Its rising is from one end of the heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. And moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Hold back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Arise and go to the south along the road which which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. And so he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. And then the Spirit said to Philip, Go near and overtake this chariot. And so Philip ran to him and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and to sit with him. And the place in the Scripture where he read was this, He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And so the eunuch asked Philip, saying, I ask you, 
Of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or some, of some other man? And then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this Scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they came, went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized them. Now when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the rain that we've enjoyed in this most recent storm, and thank you, Lord, that it seems to be an earnest storm, at the first of many that are out in the Pacific waiting to come into California. And we thank you for the wealth, Lord, that is represented in water and the desperate need that our state has for water. We acknowledge that we don't deserve a drop, Lord, but we're thankful for the rain that you bring and the snowfall in the Sierras. And we ask, Lord, that you would bring those storms in and fill these dry reservoirs all around our state. And Lord, we pray for the crusade tonight. We pray for Pastor Greg, and we ask that you would put your finishing touches on all that you want him to speak. We pray that you put a hedge of protection around him that is impenetrable. And we ask that your Holy Spirit would be so strong upon him and that you would put your finishing touches upon his heart and his mind and his soul and his strength. We pray that you would give him a boldness to deliver your word tonight, a love, Lord, that people that don't know you would look at your messenger and say, I like this guy. I think I like the God that has made him into the person that he is in, that he is. And Lord, we pray that you would bless Switchfoot and Mercy Me and Chris Tomlin and the Cray tonight and use them, Lord, to uh, impact all of our hearts with this incredible gift of music and worship that you've given to them. And we pray in accordance with your word that you are the one who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think and to do that by your Holy Spirit. And we pray for every dream, every desire that not only Greg has and the Harvest team has and all of these musicians and these worship ministers have, but the desires and the longing of our heart and the people, Lord, that are going to be at these 5,000 venues around the United States, all of the things that we long for to see people saved and seeing the need in our nation and in our world for it to be changed by a work of your Holy Spirit, that you would exceed everything that we are asking and have been thinking, Lord, for all of these weeks leading up to the crusade. Give us a little taste of heaven, of your power and of your glory tonight, and we pray that you would flex your strong right arm, Lord, and bring many to you this evening and build up and edify the body of Christ as well. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.
This last week, we looked at this same exact series of verses, but wanted to look specifically at Philip, the evangelist, and the lessons that were bound up in his life and all that is described here in the passage. But I didn't want to leave the passage without looking at a, one single great lesson that is found in the Ethiopian eunuch himself that is so important for us to hear and for us to understand, especially as Christians and as people in the Western world, uh, uh, of the entire world, and in our culture. uh, We noticed last week several things that are right on the surface for us to notice related to this Ethiopian eunuch and the things that God wants us to know about him from the passage. And first we know from verse 27 that he was a man of great power and authority. He was one of the most powerful men in his nation, and he was what would be uh, in Ethiopia at that time, uh, what would be the equivalent of being a part of the cabinet of the uh, president of the United States in our form of government, one of the most important men in the entire nation. Second, he certainly appears to have been a very wealthy man. He traveled in the luxury of a chariot or a great coach. He didn't travel alone. He was followed by a number of servants. He possessed the means by which to buy a scroll, a handwritten scroll. Everything was handwritten in those days. To possess and to own for yourself a handwritten scroll of the prophet Isaiah, that was an extraordinarily expensive purchase in those days, and he had the means by which to do it. We know that he was also a very well-educated man, and he would need to be in order to oversee a major area of responsibility like he did in that uh, country of Ethiopia. He would have had to at least have been bilingual and probably trilingual. He would have had to know the language of his native Ethiopia, but we know that as he goes to Jerusalem and he buys that scroll of Isaiah, and he's making his way home, that he is initially reading the scroll out loud. We don't know whether the scroll was written in Hebrew or Greek. It could have been either one of the languages, but he knew whatever language it was. And if it was in the Hebrew, then he knew Hebrew for for himself and uh, that language, but he would have also had to know the Greek language because that was the language of commerce in that part of the Roman Empire, and of course that was his area of oversight in Ethiopia. Fourth, he was a man who possessed a very, very broad life experience. He had a very, very broad exposure to the world and all that is in it all of the various experiences that a person might be able to absorb and to enjoy in the course of life. He was rich. He was powerful. He was highly educated. He was, in the words of our culture, sophisticated. He was very cosmopolitan, enlightened, and very worldly wise in the best sense of the word. But knowing all of that, about the Ethiopian eunuch. If we leave the passage knowing only that about him, we would know really nothing about him at all. Because supremely above all else, he is presented to us in this passage as a seeker. 
He is a man who is on a search for God, a man with a desire to know God, a man with a desire to know the meaning and the purpose of life and how it is to be lived. And he has clearly abandoned or rejected the worship of all of the popular deities and idols of his nation and of his age and all of the debauchery, all of the superstition that accompanied the worship of them. And whether as a result of his own observation of these idols and watching what they turned human beings into, or whether from his own experience, his own sad experience of following them, becoming a person that he didn't want to even be as a result of it, but whatever it was, he wanted at this point in time in his life to have nothing to do with them, to have nothing to do with the life that they produced. And here he is in our passage on a spiritual pilgrimage back from uh, Jerusalem to return to Ethiopia where he had purchased this scroll of the book of Isaiah. And our passage, fascinatingly enough, finds him completely immersed in the study of the scroll of Isaiah. He didn't buy it as a trophy. He didn't buy it as a souvenir. It is the great and single focus of his life on his journey home from Jerusalem. And he's reading the scroll, and he's trying to make sense of it in his search for God and in his desire to know more about God. And his being a seeker, played a very, very important part in his coming to God and ultimately experiencing the joy of salvation. And like this Ethiopian eunuch, every single human being in this room and every single human being in this city and in this world should be a seeker as well, a person who gives the greatest attention of their lives to the greatest questions in life. Questions like, why are we here? How did we get here? Why are we the way that we are? What is the meaning and the purpose of life? Why do people die? Why does death exist at all in the human condition? What happens after death? Am I prepared for death? What must I do to be prepared for death? Is there a God? And if there is a God, what is He like? And is there some way that I might come to know Him personally, experientially, relationally? These are the great questions in life. Now, those great questions, are they the great questions of our culture? Are those the questions that our culture continually puts before us day in and day out? Are these the questions that our culture, that we live in, that we're steeped in and immersed in, are these the kind of questions that our culture is constantly bringing to the forefront of our minds and speaking to us and warning us and exhorting us to give serious consideration to these questions? And of course, the answer is absolutely not. And instead, we are bombarded with the latest hit song, the latest hit movie, the latest award show, the latest fashion fad, the latest Apple product, the latest sporting event, the latest election cycle, the latest television series, and so forth. And all of those things being different in and of themselves are all united by one thing, that if we allow them to do so, they become a great distraction within our lives, a 
great hindrance in our lives to ever stopping and giving five minutes of time and thought to the great questions that ought to dominate each one of our lives until we have answered them related to our lives. And a person can grow up into adult life within our culture knowing more about the secret menu at In-N-Out Burger than they know about God and read more in the form of tweets than they will ever read in their lifetime of the Bible, spend more time on Facebook than thinking about the meaning and the purpose of life. They tell us that the average American spends five hours a day watching television. That's a total of just slightly less, given the average lifespan of an American, that's 11.8 years out of a person's life. And some will spend that much time in front of that television for all of those years, five hours and more, day in and day out, but they will live their entire life without spending five total hours in their life seeking God. There used to be a game called Trivial Pursuit. I remember it very well. But it's no longer just simply a board game. It has become a way of life within our culture, and it's very dangerous in what life has become. There is a truth bound up in the Ethiopian eunuch that is almost completely, as I have said, lost upon our modern Western world. And it is a truth that no one can afford to be ignorant about, and it is the importance of the seeking heart or the searching heart to our own salvation. We cannot demand that God break through our deliberate spiritual indifference or our self-imposed distractions in life that we determine to fill every waking moment with in our lives and then blame God for our atheism, to blame Him for our agnosticism, to blame Him for our ignorance. And our modern world is fashioning a world of people with a five-minute attention span, hardly enough time to dip your toe into the subject of God or into the meaning of life. And our culture has convinced a significant number of people that the search for God and the search for the meaning of life cannot be compared with watching some action movie with epic car crashes. And that Whether or not I end up saved or not is completely God's responsibility, and if I end up dying and missing heaven, then that God has failed in some way. And this wonderful human being on the pages of Acts chapter 8, known as the Ethiopian eunuch, he rises up off of the page of Scripture, and he says no, no, no to all of it, and he does so from his own life experience, and he tells us we are intended to bring something to all of this. It's kind of like the guy who comes into a church, and he sits down in the front row, and he folds his arm across his chest, and he looks up at the preacher, and he essentially declares, okay, move me. And he puts all of the entire weight of his being moved or coming to believe in God or becoming a Christian upon someone else. 
and in his mind, he's not responsible to bring anything to this. No curiosity, no seeking, no, re- no reading, no investigation, no diligent searching, nothing. And the Bible teaches, though, that God desires to save each of us, but it teaches just as equally that each of us has the responsibility to make some effort in seeking Him. And God has captured all of this perfectly in one of His prophecies that He spoke to the children of Israel through the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 13. God declaring to His people and to the world, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And you notice that word search, and you notice that word seek, and the importance of each and every one of us as a creation of God to be involved in, at least on a searching and a seeking level, in our own salvation. And His promise that He gives to the children of Israel and to the whole world is that He will be found by any and all who sincerely seek to know the truth of His existence, to know Him, to discover His will for their lives. If I bring the curiosity, if I bring a seeking heart, He will always provide the revelation. And this isn't just an Old Testament truth. The Apostle Paul spoke essentially the same thing as we'll discover a little bit later in the book of Acts, chapter 17, when he's speaking to the Greek philosophers there in Athens on Mars Hill. And he spoke to them declaring this, and he, that is God, has made one blood of every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. So it raises the question then, where will an honest search take us in life? Well, most often it will take us where Psalm 19 begins. It will cause us to give some consideration to the creation that surrounds us, each and every one of us, on a daily basis, and then to conclude that there can only be a creator behind the creation that we witness on a daily basis, that the creation around us speaks of a creator. Again, as we read in Psalm 19, the psalmist David declares that all of creation testifies to the existence of God. He stated in verse 1 that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. That is that the sun and the moon and the stars, they all testify not only to God's existence, but that they testify to His power and they testify to His greatness and to His glory. David said that creation day unto day it utters speech. Every single day it is communicating to us. Night unto night it reveals knowledge. Every night it is intended to be teaching us something. He said that there is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. In other words, every day it communicates in a language that every single person in the world can understand. He said their line has gone out through all of the earth 
their words to the end of the world. In other words, it communicates equally with every single portion of the world. And what does all of creation communicate all day, every day, to every part of the world, as David writes by the Holy Spirit? It communicates one great message. There is a God. There is a God. There is a God. There is a God. That is the message that creation speaks all day, every day, to anyone who would bother to listen to it. I remember several years ago reading an article in the Medesto B entitled, Noted Atheist Changes Mind About God. Well, that gets the attention of a pastor. And so the article was an article on a gentleman by the name of Anthony Flew, who the article declared, I quote, over the years has proclaimed the lack of evidence for God while teaching at Oxford, Aberdeen, Khalid, the, and the, the Reading Universities in Britain in visits to numerous U.S. and Canadian campuses and in books, articles, lectures, and debates. The first three paragraphs stated this in the article, a British philosophy professor who has been a leading champion of atheism for more than a half century has changed his mind. He now believes in God based on scientific evidence and says so in a video released Thursday. At age 81, I believe uh, Mr. Flew, he uh, died at age 84. At age 81, after decades of insisting that belief is a mistake, has concluded that some sort of intelligence or first cause must have created the universe. A superintelligence is the only explanation for the origin of life and the complexity of nature, Flew said in England. And what changed his mind was the investigation of DNA by biologists, which he said, quote, has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangement which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved. He went on to say further, it has become inordinately difficult even to begin to think about constructing a naturalistic theory of evolution, uh, 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 of the evolution of the first reproducing organism. It's interesting, and you might look it up online if you want, Dr. Flew gave a scathing review of Richard Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, and he scorned the research and lack of research and intellectual honesty within the book, and he said the only thing that made him marvel as he read the book is that such a book could sell over a million copies. What changed Mr. Flew's life, exactly what David declared 3,000 years ago in Psalm 19, that all of creation speaks of a creator. And David was convinced of it by looking at the heavens, by the sun, the moon, and the stars. There were no microscopes in those days. He looked at it with the naked eye, saw the rhythm of life, saw the structure, saw the creation before him. And Professor Flew was convinced by the evidence found in DNA. And whether a person looks at creation by way of telescope or looks at it by terms, in terms of microscope, there is always the same conclusion as David speaks about it in Psalm 19, that all of creation testifies to a creator. 
But Psalm 19, David also declared that what is true of creation is also true of design, that no matter where you look in life today, where you look at something that man has created, you, wherever you see design in life, it always testifies to the fact that there must be a designer behind it, whether it's a wristwatch or a bridge or whether it's a skyscraper. Anywhere you see design, you realize there is a designer behind this design. That bridge doesn't just happen. That skyscraper doesn't just happen. And not only does the skyscraper speak of the fact that there is a creator and a design for it, but it speaks of the fact that the creator and the designer is greater than the creation. And David is saying, in essence, that what is true of all of these things in terms of watches and bridges and skyscrapers with men is also true of all of the design that is represented in creation by God. And so often you'll hear a person cry out to God, God, if you exist, give me a sign. And we know that a person can be perfectly sincere in crying that out. And here is the psalmist lovingly points us to the signs that exist around us all day, every day, day in and day out, night in and night out. And the communication uh, by creation of a creator and the communication of design, of a designer, is so strong and universal that God declares that if a person lives their entire life in the midst of all of this design, in the midst of all of this creation, all of this communicating creation, and does not come to believe in the existence of God. He doesn't care what's being taught in the upper levels of education anywhere. God says for anyone to live their three score and ten throughout this life and not to realize that there is a designer behind the design and there is a creator behind the creation and that that creator and designer is God, that that person is foolish. In Psalm 14, 1, the fool, God says, has said in his heart, there is no God. Now, a few weeks ago, I was listening to a teaching by Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. And I always love when I stumble across his stuff and then able to listen to it, especially when he's given a full session uh, to teach, and he's going to teach at some length. I only understand a third of what he's talking about, but it's still uh, <laughs> lovely for me to engage in, in, uh, in the exercise of all, all of it. And in the course of his teaching that night he, or that afternoon, he referenced the work of Sir Frederick Hoyle and another very esteemed, highly esteemed uh, colleague of uh, Mr. Hoyle who came to reject the idea of the origin of life coming about on the basis of random chance, the idea that life could come into existence out of nothing or out of non-life. And he rejected it on the basis of the study of enzymes within the human body. He didn't take how enzymes connect with the brain. He didn't study the brain. He didn't study the human heart. He didn't study uh, the uh, circulatory system. He just looked at just one narrow band of something that exists within the human body as a part of 
what he was looking at, and he rejected uh, this idea that, that life could just spontaneously occur on the basis of the study of enzymes within the human body, and he wrote that the odds of just the enzymes within the cells of the human being, of a human body, coming into existence on their own on the basis of atheistic evolution as being a chance of being one times ten to the forty thousandth power in terms of possibility. That's a really, really big number if you want to try and get your head around it. And Ravi went on to say, in light of that, he said, faith is not credulity. It is not believing nonsense. God has put enough into this world to make faith in Him a most reasonable thing, indeed the only reasonable thing. And that is very, very wonderfully put. The Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Paul, stated it even more strongly in the book of Romans, chapter 1, where he wrote in verse 18, "'For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven.'" against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." It is fascinating that the Apostle Paul then, in the same book of Romans, then goes on in Romans chapter 2 to make mention of man's conscience in this same vein. And speaking of man's conscience, of how it is that our conscience speaks not only of the fact that we have been created by God, but also that we are descendants of Adam and Eve and the fact that we are also fallen, fallen from perfection as a result of their sin in that ancient garden of Eden, within the human condition. And it's fascinating to recognize it about the whole world. Within the human condition, mankind possesses a uniform conscience in the sense that worldwide murder is always considered wrong, stealing is always considered wrong, lying is always considered wrong, adultery is always considered wrong, and not murdering or stealing or committing adultery or lying is always right. One of the fascinating things about our conscience is that our conscience is higher than our actual practice. There is not one person in this room or one person in this world who lives our lives even on a daily basis up to the standard of our conscience. And why is that? And what does it communicate to us? It is because our conscience does not have its origin in us, but it has its origin in God who is higher and greater than us. And so our conscience testifies to the fact that, number one, we have been created by someone who is greater than we are, and number two, we have fallen from that something higher. And all day, every day, that great gulf that exists between the standard of our conscience and the life that we actually live is communicating to us 
you are fallen, you are fallen, you are fallen, like a great neon light inside of us flashing. At one time, man, it communicates, at one time, man was superior to what he is now, but he has fallen from that high and lofty place. You see, the whole world around us and the whole world inside of us is speaking all day, every day of the existence of God. Ah, so it then raises the next question. If I believe in the existence of God, how can I come to know what He is like? And the answer to that question is to find the holy book in the world that speaks of God as the creator of the heavens and the earth, that speaks of Him as the designer of the design that's displayed in all of creation, the book that also supplies the explanation for this great separation between the standard of man's conscience and our actual practice that also possesses some record of a fall in mankind's history, a fall from perfection as an explanation for the condition of our conscience. And when a person does that, at this point in a person's search, they'll find themselves seated on a couch or a chair somewhere with a Bible on their laps. And it is no accident when in Psalm 19 that David shifts gears in a dramatic way from describing God as creator to then speaking about the greatness of His Word. It's almost uh, a, funny when you read Psalm 19 for the first time in your life. And here he is, he's talking about creation and the marvel of creation, the witness that it is to God through the first six verses. And then abruptly he begins to talk about the Word of God in, in a very majestic way. And as you're reading along, it just seems like this kind of a abrupt change that's occurred here. And you think, did he go into the kitchen and grab a cup of coffee and lose his train of thought and head into the next psalm? And, uh, but that's not what happens at all. He, he knew exactly what he was uh, doing there. And he goes from speaking about the greatness of God as creator to then speaking about uh, the greatness of God's Word because once a person comes to acknowledge the existence uh, of God by virtue of creation, then the next revelation that he or she is going to need is going to come from God's Word. Revelation concerning questions like, what is he like? And what does he think? And what does he think of me? Are all answered in the Word of God when they can't be answered anywhere else. And this is where the Ethiopian eunuch was in his search when we run into him in Acts chapter 8. He's a believer in God. He is a believer in the God of the Bible. And he is seeking to deepen his understanding of God through the reading of God's Word, but something else is needed in his life, and God knows it. And thus God sends Philip to the Ethiopian eunuch in order to make known to him the gospel, God's news of the provision of the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and a victory over death through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that we then receive by putting our trust in Him and becoming His disciples. 
And it is here that the Ethiopian eunuch learned, not only is God powerful, not only is God holy, not only is He wise, but then perhaps the greatest revelation of all that God is loving. As Jesus declared in John 3.16, the most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. You say, why is that significant? What good would it do me on my search to find out that God is only powerful and wise and holy but not loving and not forgiving and not interested in me or my life or my soul, not interested in a relationship with me? And the answer to those questions, if He is not loving, all these other things would mean nothing. It would do us no good if He were not loving. But the Bible and the gospel and Jesus Christ reveals Him to be exactly that. And it's wonderful to notice that when the Ethiopian eunuch was made aware of God's love for his soul and the possibility of the forgiveness of sins, the opportunity to know God personally, through putting his faith in Jesus, he received God's offer of salvation immediately. He knew as soon as he heard that gospel that his search was over, that it had come to a successful conclusion in putting his faith in Christ because we're told in verse 39 of Acts chapter 8 that he went on his way rejoicing. And it is the greatest feeling in the world to come to the successful end of the greatest search in life by putting my faith in Jesus and being born again by the Holy Spirit and to realize I am home. This is what I've been looking for all of my life. He is who I've been looking for all of my life. He answers every question that I have in my life. And then to realize marvel of marvels that what was true and available to the Ethiopian eunuch 2,000 years ago is equally available to each and every one of us in this room this morning. Salvation, forgiveness of sins, everlasting life, it's all there for the asking and all there for the receiving. Not by climbing to the top of the Himalayas, or crawling on my knees up some long series of steps leading to the doorway of some cathedral. But as the Apostle John put it in his gospel, but as many as received Him, that is Jesus, to them He gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The greatest hindrance to a man or woman putting their faith in the God of the Bible and then ultimately trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior is not due to some failure on God's part to supply us with the evidence that we need for doing so, nor is it due to an absence of effort on His part to make Himself known to us but rather most often it is simply due to the dullness of our own hearts, 
the stupidity of our culture that is dumbing all of us down in a very dangerous way, and the absence of a seeker's heart concerning the most important things in life, and indeed the most important thing in life. And it is good to know as men and women who are being raised and being steeped in this culture and the attempt of the culture to fashion us, it is good to be reminded from the life of the Ethiopian eunuch that it is our responsibility to search for the meaning and the purpose of life. It is then God's responsibility to bring us to the truth. Again, God's promise through Jeremiah the prophet and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. And the Ethiopian eunuch was a man on a spiritual search, and that search brought him to Jesus. And every human being should be on a spiritual search, and every honest seeker and sincere seeker will be brought to faith in Jesus. God made sure of it with this Ethiopian eunuch and he will do the same thing in our lives as well. Let's stand together this morning. What a wonderful book the Bible is. Who's saying these kind of things but God? who's waking us up out of the stupor of our world, the spiritual slumber of the world that we live in, the narcotic of entertainment, the narcotic of whatever, where our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength is wasted on triviality. And we all know the potential of living our entire lives thinking about nothing greater than what they put before our eyes and our ears on a daily basis and how we need something strong from the Word of God to wake us up to our responsibility within the world, the, place, uh, the small place of our responsibility within our salvation. I love God for His forthrightness. I love Him for what He says that no one else will say or dare to say or risk the relationship or hurting our feelings. And what He says through the Ethiopian eunuch, we desperately need to hear. The whole world needs to hear it, and the Western world especially. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, there will be pastors and other men and women up in front and after the service who would love to pray with you to bring you to the successful end of your search. You're not in a room like this. You're not in a church, not with 45,000 channels on the television and a million other things to do in life. You're not in a church unless you're on a search and God is drawing you to Him. And if you would like to come to a successful conclusion to that search by putting your faith in Christ this morning, they'd love to pray with you and then to pray for you to do so. For all of us in the room this morning, if you need prayer for any need in your life, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Mike, would you close us?